Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we'll be focusing on the SHP Awards and hearing from four winners, SHP's Rising Star UK and Rising Stars in Construction and Manufacturing, and SHP's Trailblazer in Positive Social Impact. This episode is sponsored by PeopleSafe the UK's leading provider of loan worker technology solutions. Our working environments and practices are changing and keeping employees safe is a top priority, whether they're at work, at home or commuting. PeopleSafe is with you every step of the way, putting people at the heart of safety. See how we can offer greater protection for your employees at peoplesafe.co.uk. First up, we're going to hear from Thomas Dunning. Thomas is a mechanical engineer by trade, and in his day job, he works for British Sugar. He's perhaps better known though as the mental health runner, an award-winning TED speaker who shares his mental health journey explicitly to show the world that it really is okay not to be okay. After being voted as SHP's trailblazer in positive social impact, judges highlighted how they were impressed with how Thomas had turned the negative of his own mental ill health struggles into a positive and opened the subject up to a much wider audience. Let's join the interview with Tom explaining how the Mental Health Runner came about and how it has evolved into what it is today. I was just looking around at TED Talks and there's a couple which actually got me through when I was actually in my worst part of my mental health. And I realised that talk about my mental health was quite a powerful subject, not just for one person who may be suffering with it, but it's also quite empowering for someone else who may be suffering in silence. And that's when I I spoke to my wife, Amber, and I said, I'm thinking about doing a blog about mental health. Should I do it? And Amber, being the amazing support she is, she said, yeah, go on, you, you go for it, see what happens. And to be honest, that's how mental health when it started. It was just me talking about my mental health issues, my diagnoses, what I'm struggling with, how it affects me, but also how running is a massive help for mental health and your mental health and well-being and just from there really that's where I started mental health runner and I just started to help people get active help people want to use something else as almost like a holistic approach to help their mental health you know it's free it's something easy anyone can do even just to be active and then from there it's just grown and grown and grown and expanded really and for those who don't know who haven't kind of read up on on the articles about you you winning the award you mentioned your diagnosis there can you just tell me a little bit about about your diagnosis and the, the troubles you've had with your mental health yeah sure so diagnosed with borderline personality disorder social anxiety disorder and ptsd and they're kind of like a, a mixture of the three of all because of different backgrounds in my life so the ptsd and the social anxiety it was triggered when my brother sadly passed away in 2009 but it all kind of stems back to my childhood where I was bullied quite heavily throughout my school life. And it, yeah, it wasn't a very nice time. At home, fantastic. But outside the home, as soon as I left the front door, I'd have to sprint to school and sprint and hide away from people and things like that. It, it was quite horrific. So that's kind of where the PTSD comes from and the social anxiety. If it's going into a group, I really struggle to go into a group of more than four people just because I feel like I'm not welcome. But that's just me putting my own kind of stigma on that and how the anxiety affects me. The other one is called uh, borderline personality disorder or BPD. Now, people can struggle with that for many different ways. The way that it affects me is, is if you imagine your emotions kind of like on a knife edge where 
for example, if, if you're having a great day, for example, and you said to me, hi, Tom, how are you? My mood will go, oh, yeah, I'm really well, thank you. I'm you know, really happy I've made you happy. Maybe it's something I've done to make you happy, and it makes me feel positive. But when it's the opposite way around, say you've had a bad day or you've not slept very well, and you just go, oh, hi, Ed, morning, yeah, you're right. That, to me, can send me the opposite way where I could think, oh, what have I done? Have I upset that person? I didn't mean to offend you. And that's kind of how BPD affects me. It's also known as emotionally unstable personality disorder, but I don't like the term for it because if you tell someone you're emotionally unstable, people go, whoa, okay, let's not talk about that. But if you mention borderline personality disorder, like yourself has just done, is they go, oh, well, what's that then? How does that affect you? But that's just me. That's just me not really liking that term. It's like used to call bipolar manic associative disorder. Well, the acronym for that is MAD. And obviously that's why they changed it. So yeah, that's just, again, that's just personal to me. I think a lot of it isn't it's breaking down the stigma and actually getting people you want to encourage people to to talk about it as you do rather than detract people from talking about it with you know making people worried about asking questions and actually want you want people to open up and, and discuss it more publicly um yeah exactly yeah so it was obviously your your work outside uh outside british sugar as, as the mental health runner that saw you voted as shp's trailblazer and positive social impact and obviously subsequently won that award in december how did it feel when when you were told about you've been shortlisted and, and then found out that you were you were the winner yeah i think that says it all really <laughs> um yeah it it felt incredible you know this is just something that i took up because it's something i'm passionate about yeah i'm passionate about my actual career as well but i'm also very passionate in mental health and destigmatizing it and the fact that since shp is such a well-known thing and i've been nominated for an award and been shortlisted for it it really made me feel like everything i'm doing is good Whereas for me, this is just me ranting about myself, if that makes sense. I'm just talking about myself, trying to help people help get help with it. Yeah, to be shortlisted is incredible. But when I found out I'd won, you know, I was I was in pieces. You know, I, I couldn't believe. Honestly, I couldn't believe it because it's for, for me to have an award for that for my, for that side of my work. It was just it. I, I can't really describe what it meant to me because again, it's just something I'm really passionate about, and I don't want anyone to go through what I did. And the fact that, like yourselves, the SHP has picked up on that and how much my work is helping other people. Yeah, I was just a complete mess. Amber thought I was having a really bad day with my mental health. So, you know, put action plan in place for when I'm having that bad day. And then we started talking about it and I showed her the email. She said, well, why are you in such a mess? I said, I don't know. (laughs) I just don't know. I'm so, I'm so happy. So, yeah, no, it really meant a lot because I just see myself as someone who's trying to do their bit. As long as I can look back on my life and just say, you know, either I tried or I did that, you know, that's all that I want. And I think going through life, that's what anyone wants. So that's just kind of, yeah, <laughs> to be honest, it was, it was It's a great reaction. It's really, really pleasing to see that that's had that impact on you. So yeah, really, really, really glad to see that. And you talk there a lot about the impact that you you want to have on, on other people, how you want to help other people. But how important has it been for you personally to be able to speak up and like openly about your mental health and, and encourage others to um to, to who struggle to open up as well? What would you say to them who, who you know in who are in the same situation as you and, and maybe struggle to speak out? Yeah, I think for me as a person talking about my own mental health and what I went through, there's something really cathartic about it, the fact that I'm just telling people about what happened to me. Um but the way that I see it is that when I was in my in the bad parts of the mental health um, situation, I was off work for a year, when I had all the, the cyberbullying and all the text messages saying, like, you're faking it and all this, 
the, the fact that I can now openly talk about my mental health issues and now on a global scale, you know, to, to, to different parts of the of different parts of the world. Yeah, for, for me, it's a type of therapy because it makes me realize that, yes, it is normal and people want to hear your story. But it also, for me, makes me realize that, you know, I was there once looking at people talking about, well, listening to their stories about their TED talk, hearing other people's stories, reading about other people's stories and how important it is that we talk. And, you know, for those people who may be struggling and not wanting to speak out about their mental health, there will be people out there who won't want to listen to it because they might be affected. They might be going through it themselves and not know what to say. Um, but honestly, out at the end of it, there's always going to be someone who will want to listen, whether you think they're listening or not. It is really powerful, even to yourself, just to say, look, I'm not feeling too great, because that alone is enough for you to say, well, I've just accepted that there's something not quite right. Maybe I now need to get some help. And it's just kind of stepping that mark, taking that first step to go, you know what? I've just said to myself that something isn't quite right here and I'm having to ask for some support. Maybe I need to go find some professional help. So, I'd, I, yeah, I'd, I think to those people, you should never be ashamed and you should never feel stigmatized about what you're going through. I was my worst enemy. I stigmatized myself. I thought I was a danger to people at one point. And I didn't leave the house because of it. But, you know, you're, you're not. You'll just go through an extremely hard time and you will get through it. You're so strong to even just to say, look, something's not quite right. That is a massive first step forward towards that. And it might not have that immediate impact on someone, but the more people hear other people talking out about their own experiences, the more they can resonate with with those experiences they're having. And then maybe further down the line, actually go, well, maybe maybe now is the time and, and I am ready. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really positive. Yeah, definitely. How, how supportive were, were your organisation during the time when you, were, when you were at your worst? To be fair, they were very supportive. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because obviously I'm still employed by them. No, they, they were very supportive. There wasn't much known about mental health at the time in the workplace. Do you think that's changing? Oh, yeah, 100%. Absolutely, 100%. Now, whether it was what I went through as a catalyst or because on a global scale, mental health is now talked about more often, that maybe it's it's got better that way. And it's now on the mantle of people's company agendas. So um, like through well-being audits that, that other companies do. But yeah, it's definitely getting a lot better. At the time, like I said, there wasn't any mental health first aiders on site. Um, I didn't even know they existed, like was a thing in general. And then, yeah, they've been very, very supportive, even to the fact of, you know, I, I helped British Sugar to sign up to the mental health at work commitment. And that was me just, being extremely passionate thinking why haven't we signed up to this this is nothing but a good thing and amazingly the staff have been so supportive to the fact even the factory manager has suggested i speak to the board of directors on it and from there on yeah we've started a mental health committee at work one at central office you know mental health first aiders at all different sites around the country so yeah even in the world on the world mantle it's getting a lot better but in, the, in my personal life, I can definitely see there's been a massive, huge step change, even though it, I know a year's a long time. But when I was off on 2014, there's what? There's six, seven years between that. And it's changed massively since then. So, yeah, they've been incredible. I think that was um, so that was something the judges recognised when when they were voting for, for their winner of the award is, is that this is obviously not part of your your day job it's something you do outside of work but actually you've managed to have a significant impact both inside and outside your organization 
What other things have you done to accomplish that? And how those conversations start with your senior management? So the signing up to the commitment, it all started when Time to Talk was still about, unfortunately not about anymore. Time to Talk did something called the Time to Talk Pledge, which is basically the company from the board level up saying, look, we are going to look after our mental health and well-being of our staff. And, you know, I found this presentation, I made it my own, I put all the statistics in it, did all the cost-based analysis and things and why it's important. And then I basically presented to all the senior management on site and they suggested I go speak to the board of directors, to which, you know, from then I've I put a lot of my own personal time and it's not something that I'm paid to do. You know, I'm, I'm paid to be a process technician and a, and a mechanical engineer. In my spare time on my days off, I normally attend the committee meetings just because it's something I'm passionate about. And... If it helps me and it helps other people, you know, if it helps someone not go through what I did, then, you know, everyone's a winner. But yeah, it it felt incredible. The fact that the board then approached me, I sat down with the HR director for the entirety of British Sugar. From there, I've joined a committee at Central Office that includes AB Sugar and ABF personnel. Yeah, yeah, it's just completely blown up. And it's, it's, it's great to see the company has said that, you know, we are going to look after our mental health in staff not only for our customers to then say, look, we can see you're looking after your staff and you're doing what you can, but also that everyone, everyone feels safe. Uh, and I think that's the most important thing, especially in an industrial facility, a you know, food production facility, that you know everyone leaves the same way they arrived, whether it be physical or mental health related. I think it's one of the things that I've noticed is that employers are having to become kind of more receptive to this because I think not only to staff, but that the, the general public have a lot more of a passing interest in how companies treat their staff these days and maybe than they did 10 or 15 years ago not only in terms of sort of health and well-being but in terms of sustainability and how that company portrays itself to the public is a lot more important now than than perhaps it was you know maybe go back 15 20 years you would go to your place of work you would do your work and you would come home and you wouldn't almost care what your company does all that much yeah. I think there's a lot more interest in in how your company's perceived now and I think board level are having to be aware of that and having to make these changes either because they want to, because they care for their staff, but also because it's important to their perception as well. Yeah, definitely, 100%. And that's kind of where they wanted them, my drive for getting the company to sign up to that pledge was, uh, or that commitment, was because we, we once had an audit from a customer, I can't remember who it was, and it was basically a staff audit, where it was just we were sat in a room, like a small sample of us sat in a room, some of them, one of the company's representatives who was auditing us, just said, right, so how are you feeling? Are you being looked after? How many hours a week do you work? You know, have you got this? Have you got that? Are you looked after? And that was a big driver, a big consideration that, you know, maybe, you know, if if, if the company can look after their staff, fantastic. But if we can promote the businesses looking after their staff and we're out there saying, yeah, this is us doing what we can. For me, it's just a win-win. The staff feel supported and the rest of the world knows that British Sugar is looking after their staff, but also a world-class food producer. So we, we deal across a, a wide scope of, of health and safety. But in terms of health and well-being, I think that's where there's the biggest disparity between companies that are doing well and companies that aren't doing so well, because it's fairly new. You know, everybody's on a similar level with some of the regulations in other areas. But on health and well-being, there's a, there's a big gap in sort of where companies are at. And I think that's why we see a lot of content on, on health and well-being. And I think that's where a lot of interest comes, because companies are still uh, on a massive learning curve at the moment. What do you think employers can do maybe if they're at the lower end of that and they're fairly new in terms of a well-being program? What can they do to help improve the health and well-being of their workforce? One of the first things which is completely free to do and is like the less hassle thing to do is 
do a survey. I know some companies that I've spoke to in regards to when I've gone around helping put things in place for the companies and, and doing presentations, that when I ask that question myself, they don't know because they haven't asked or they've been scared to find out. Sometimes in some businesses, it's almost like it's a, if we don't know, it doesn't hurt anyone. So just finding out what the staff need, if the staff are being supported, you know, you, you might be shocked when you find out the results, you might be doing something that's really bad, that's really easy to fix. Or, you know, you might be just doing the right stuff, but just not publicize what you're doing. So the best thing for me is, yeah, just just ask, just ask the employees because, you know, they're the people who are who are helping run the business as well. Everyone is equal. Everyone's got a different title. And I know putting something in place, it's proven that companies with a mental health and well-being policy in place on the FTSE 100 outperform others by 10% who don't have one. And, you know, and that was just looking after staff. It's not going out of the way massively. It, you know, it's just making sure that we're all okay. So I think it's massively, massively important that you just put something in place. You know, ask your staff, even if it's like having a sit down one lunchtime and just going, is everyone okay? Um, if it's like having a public speaking once a year or doing something big for that one week of the year for Mental Health Awareness Week, it's just doing little things to meet this massive quick wins to meet this massive goal which you know is obviously everyone having perfect mental health in the workplace do you think that's especially topical at the moment with obviously the pandemic and people working remotely and then that now starting to i know there's a lot of anxiety about returning to the workplace is it safe and you know having to travel to and from work i think now is as good a time as any to kind of start those conversations if you're not already in a place where you're doing that oh 100 yeah definitely i mean I'm, I'm quite lucky that i'm i'm a key worker so i've been um I've been going to the factory still working shifts and doing the bit. But those people working from home, I can totally appreciate that, you know, they, they might be really anxious to return to the workplace because of, of the pandemic. You know, we, no one has gone, no one has ever in our lifetime gone through this. So there isn't really a right or wrong way to go about it. We can only really learn. Um, and what we do now, like you said, is the most important thing because it will help in the future. You know, whether that is companies are allowing more working from home. Uh, if that's people being in wider spaces in their office, if that's incorporating nature into their into their uh, working life, um, you know, there's so many things we can do right now that you know we, we even companies can ask other companies and just say, what are you doing in regards to this? Yeah, I think everyone's going through the same unknown at the moment. I think you find that some people have thrived from working from home. They, they're closer to their family. They're closest, as you say, to nature. They're not having to go into the city. Whereas some people have really missed that interaction with colleagues. You might live alone or, you you know, you might not have that that family around you that you can see. So it's about being flexible isn't it? And, and, and you're not going to yeah. know that until you have the conversations. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And you're obviously speaking at the Workplace um, Wellbeing Conference at the start of June. Uh, what can delegates who uh, attend your session expect to, to hear from you during that session? So what you'd expect to hear is basically my story, um, my story and how I've created this mental health runner. It mentions a lot about uh, what I went through and it is very dark in, in places, but that's the way it's supposed to be because I don't want to hide anything regarding my story. You know, someone may watch just watch it and feel like it might be close to home. It might be something that they might have endured something in their life. Um, but it's the, the idea is it starts conversations. You can expect to see more about my diagnosis, more about what I went through in my life, but more importantly, how I've recovered and how anyone can do the exact same thing I did because I'm not a special guy. I'm just an individual who's trying to do their bit. 
and I really hope it helps literally anyone. It's open to anyone, and I, I really hope people enjoy it. It's a, it's a really interesting interesting story, and it's it's inspirational to, to to sort of sit and listen to you say you're not a special guy, but it actually it's inspirational to hear you talk and open up and share those those stories. And I think I think anybody that attends that will get real value from it. So I really look forward to to seeing it again. And what is next for you over the next sort of twelve months or so for the mental health runner? Um, what, what have you got planned and beyond? The next few months are the busiest for me. So I've still got the first X Ford program going on uh, in Lincoln, and personally i've got a big event uh, trying to raise awareness and a bit of money for mental health services i'm running the pennine way on the 31st of may to the 16th of june following my dad's footsteps that he did in 1984 so i'm um, yeah 270 miles with uh, i think it's about 40 kilos on my back with my tent and food and stove and a lot uh, wild camping the entire thing um, and again, the, the the main reason why I'm doing that is to show people that I've got these mental health diagnoses that you, you should never feel limited to what you can and can't do because, well, I'm silly enough to run 270 miles across a mountain. So that's my big thing. Then really, who knows, really? It's just the whole mental health runner journey has just kind of opened up page by page, book by book. So I don't know, to be honest. I'm, I'm just really looking forward to what's next after this. Some really inspiring words there from Tom. He describes himself as a normal guy, but he's such a powerful story and the way he harnesses his energy into improving the well-being of those around him and further afield must really be applauded. If you've not yet seen Tom's TED Talk, I really urge you to check it out and I'll drop a link in the episode description. Next up, I was delighted to speak to three young up-and-coming health and safety professionals who have all been recognised as SHP Rising Stars in the SHP Awards. Launched by SHP in 2015, Rising Stars commends young professionals showing drive and determination in the early stages of their careers and supports them for further success. First up, we're going to hear from Lucilla Cummings, HSE Improvement Specialist at Travis Perkins, who was named as the winner of SHP Award for Rising Star UK an award which recognises young health and safety professionals across all sectors going above and beyond to improve occupational health, safety and or well-being in the UK. Judges noted how Lucilla has made rapid progress through the business in such a short space of time. I began by asking Lucilla how she got into a career in health and safety. So I'd completed an undergraduate degree at Salford University. It's not in safety, it was in environmental management. And then I went on to do a master's degree in environmental management and assessment but whilst I was doing both of those we had health and safety modules and they're the ones that I enjoyed the most and I kind of resonated with the most so whilst at university I did like extra activities such as NUS auditing activity to kind of gain knowledge of health and safety and see what transferable skills I could use in both of those professions so after university I took some time out just to think about what do I want to do, health and safety or environment? And obviously I chose health and safety. So I applied for a graduate scheme with Travis Perkins. And six weeks after that, I was moving down from Manchester to Leicester. having never visited there before, but had the faith that it was the right thing to do because I knew that was the career that I wanted. So it was kind of like a bit of trial and error, but I knew that's what I wanted to do over environment. And what was it about health and safety that attracted and appealed to you? It was just the ability with environment is kind of a bit more structured. So there's a lot more kind of policies and management systems that you have to follow. Whereas with health and safety, we've always kind of got that 
freedom to do that continual improvement and it's quite diverse in terms of the industries and having a look on LinkedIn and seeing what people are doing in health and safety and seeing how it's kind of at the heart of everything so not just in work but outside of work that's kind of what brought me into it and I'm quite a caring person at heart so I knew it was the right thing for me to do. And you've progressed uh, fairly quickly during your, your role at Travers Perkins and, and achieved quite a lot in quite a short space of time. Tell us a bit about your role and what it involves. So I work in quite a new role in health and safety. A lot of time when I'm networking with people, they ask, what does an improvement specialist do? And we're in a really good space that we're able to identify proactively areas of improvement and work with frontline colleagues and work with senior leaders to kind of fill the holes. It's quite an interesting role because we're able to work with other industry leading companies and also create a pavement in terms of being industry leading ourselves. So some of the work that I've done has been about like load security. It's been about stuff even down to like uniform, just stuff that makes people's lives easier when it comes to safety. And obviously over the last 12 months or so, your work has been recognised and you were nominated and subsequently won SHP's Rising Star UK Award for 2020. How did it feel when you found out you were shortlisted for the award and then told that you were you were the winner? So I didn't know I'd been shortlisted. That was a secret. They kept it from me. And once I found out, I was quite excited. But I think there's also that little bit of imposter syndrome. You think, oh my gosh, it's me. So when I found out I won, I was actually on um a Google Hangout on camera and I think one of the team members had messaged my manager who was also on the call to let them know that I'd won so it was kind of put up on the screen and just hearing people kind of give like their testimonies in terms of like you've done really well like you've you've changed our mindset it was really exciting I think it was quite rewarding to win. And I think one of the things that, that stood out to the judges was some of the work you've done around ensuring the safety of your sales team and working with them to highlight the dangers of visiting customer sites, particularly during the, the COVID outbreak and, and travelling on the road. Tell me a little bit about that, that work. Yeah, so initially the work started with the sales team. When I joined back in 2017 and that was highlighted, we focused quite a lot of our health and safety on the branch activities and the DC activities, but not so much on the external sales team so what I did is I started with the safety basics pulling the key risks and hazards from their day-to-day life from when they get in the car to when they visit a customer or an in-branch site so we focused on like dynamic risk assessment getting the safety basics right with not confusing the risk with the hazard and dynamic risk assessment and a key piece of bringing something like that to them when they've never experienced face-to-face training is making sure that it's memorable and it's not just, you know, death by PowerPoint. So using stuff like, at the time it was new, the DVSA Pink Cats video. So that was directed by the same people that did Pharrell's Happy video and using a platform called Kahoot, which is like an interactive quiz. So that really kind of got people to think, oh, safety's different. We can do safety. So that was quite a memorable thing in terms of making sure that they can perceive it and continue to do it post the training session. Yeah, I think that communication is is really important when you're trying to get across new ideas and initiatives. And it's about coming up with new ways to actually make it appealing people to get people to resonate and listen with it. Another thing that stood out to the judges was how you've been engaging with senior leaders and you've been challenging their thoughts and influencing the output of projects. How have you gone about this and why do you feel that engagement with senior leaders is important? So I think one key thing to understand is not everyone will understand when you're talking to them about like for example a severity index 
sometimes you need to translate it into a language that they understand so for example if you're talking to finance about like lost days if you put it into like a monetary value they're more likely to understand so that's been key to get that buy-in from the senior leaders and I think it's important because if you don't have that buy-in you don't have that lead by example and you don't have them talking about it to other people so whether that's other senior leaders or frontline colleagues and if they do that and show that they care show that they're interested and it's kind of at the heart of the business you kind of won't get the traction that you need to improve safety. You also introduced a new safety management system at Toolstation and helped to improve the accident frequency weight in your, in your time at the company. Uh, what can you tell me about that? A little bit of a background in terms of their previous safety management system. I think it was quite overwhelming, especially for the frontline colleagues who they had like 64 risk assessments and it's quite a low risk environment. So it was at the heart of it was making sure that they could do it, they understood it and they could ask for help and they could manage their risk locally. So one of the key things was developing a new assurance criteria that they understood it was transparent so they could go and look and see what it was that they were going to be measured against and if they did fall below it that we could support them to get back up to that expected level also the training was quite important so I did like training to over 400 managers just to show them how the access the information on the new safety management system how it transferred to how they work in branch and also making sure that the information in terms of what was on the safety management system, we kept talking about it at our senior leaders' safety updates. So that was kind of the keys in terms of making it successful. I think the frequency rate went down because people knew how to manage their risks and they understood what their risk assessments were trying to achieve. Do you think that the with health and safety being put into the forefront of everybody's minds during the pandemic, that's actually helped you having those conversations with senior leaders because they understand the importance of health and safety now almost more than ever yeah absolutely I think it's given us as a profession a seat at the table if we didn't have it before I think it's also shown how we can work together so it doesn't have to be separate in terms of safety work separately and the operation works separately it's more of a case of us working together to achieve that same objective so I definitely think it's helped safety come to the forefront and I think it will continue to do so too. And your branches will have remained open throughout the, the lockdowns, will they, and, and considered key workers? And kind of how, how has your role and the role of the company in general been affected by the pandemic? What challenges yeah, so has that brought? We've definitely had to step up and change our ways of working. Like there was no precedent for how we manage through a pandemic. And often we've had to translate the messages that were given by the government or the guidance into one that one colleague could understand and one that we could work to as a business. So like overnight we've had to adapt and construct new ways of working and move to like click and collect models through the first lockdown. But his colleagues have been quite receptive. We've got quite good measures in place in terms of social distancing principles and they're available to everyone. And the role itself has been quite challenging. So a lot of my improvement work has been through spending time with frontline colleagues and getting that face time in. So we've had to find new ways of doing it virtually, new ways of setting up working groups and new ways to identify those opportunities as well. How have you found the guidance in terms of what you need to do in terms of adhering to the regulations? Have you found it been, it's been clear enough? How easy has, been, has it been to follow and how have you managed to get those messages across to your workforce? I'd say initially it wasn't quite clear. I think everyone was probably in the same space. 
so the director that we've got has worked with the government to kind of get a better understanding and to help keep Britain building. So we've got our own set of principles. So we've translated them into a language that's understood by colleagues. I think that's been essential because if you just direct them to the government website, it's not that clear what's applicable to you and what's not. So we've updated those every time there's been a new announcement or a new set of guidance that's been given by the government. And we've also got some pictures to help understand, so for example, where they should put their screens, what the standard is in terms of like your sanitation stations. So it all comes down to communication again, doesn't it? What are some of the main hazards that your workers face generally and how have you addressed those? It can be either before or, or during the pandemic. So it varies business to business, but I'll just focus on Travis Perkins, the business itself. So we've got our own fleet, we run our own fleet, so we have thousands of deliveries that go out a day. Um, so that's definitely been one of our key risks. And one way we, which we've addressed it, if we've given actual guidance on how to secure the products that colleagues have found and flagged has been difficult to do that. So we've worked with like the likes of our training partner to almost like decode the guidance that's out there because it doesn't relate specific to the products and giving them videos, giving them pictures, giving them words. So if they can't um, understand it through one of those methods, there's, there's one that works for them. And we ran some stand downs, which is where we shut the business. We focus just on that specific issue to really kind of give colleagues a better understanding. And we've almost created like a Q&A sheet. So every time someone asks something different, there'll probably be a thousand people thinking that or a hundred people thinking that. And we just want to make sure that that information's out there for them. And is that available on on a website or is that circulated through emails or through devices or? A bit of both. So we've used QR codes so they can access it from a tablet or a phone. We've also got it on our internal system. So it's living, breathing document. They can go in and see it. And it has gone out via email, but we know not everyone can kind of get their email. So drivers don't have as much access to emails as a branch manager would. So we've done different ways and we've done some videos as well that go out to their delivery device so they can watch them on there as well. And have you had to restrict um, in terms of social distancing? Has there been ever occasions when you had to restrict the number of people travelling in a vehicle to do deliveries or that sort of thing? Or has that not really been? It's more for our like kitchens and bathroom side. So we've had to kind of work with the guidance that's been given by the government to make sure that we're doing the things that they ask for and that we're staying by the guidance as well. But that's more on kitchens and bathroom side of the business. And then just finally, then, what do you think the future looks like for health and safety in general? And has the pandemic reshaped that future at all? And, and, and more specifically, kind of you, what are your kind of hopes and goals over the next five, 10 years? So I'd like to think like the perception of safety has changed off the back of the pandemic. I think it's given us a positive light in terms of the value of safety. So making sure that our systems and processes are understood. I think it's also given us as a profession an opportunity to hold the mirror up in the way in which we deliver messages. I think, as an example, when the government guidance came out, it wasn't quite clear. And I think there has probably been times when we've not been clear in terms of our expectations. Like I recently went to a virtual IOSH conference and many of the connections expressed on there that they felt like safety, their role as a, as a safety professional was more valued off the back of a pandemic. So I think it's really enforced that we have the same objective across the businesses. For myself, I 
see myself staying in this role so I don't see myself moving away from health and safety for the foreseeable. It was really interesting to hear Lucilla say that the pandemic has provided an opportunity to hold the mirror up and assess its true value to workplaces and society as a whole and how she feels that the role of a health and safety practitioner is more valued as a result. I really believe that she is right and the pandemic has propelled the profession to the forefront of people's minds and made them a lot more receptive to the ideas and initiatives that are being put across. Next up, it's PepsiCo's EHS specialist, Sam Watts, who was named as SHP's rising star in manufacturing. As you're about to hear, Sam fell into safety six years ago after starting an EHS temporary admin role whilst waiting to join the police force, but quickly realised her passion for all things health and safety. It was Sam's response to COVID-19 that really stood out to the judging panel as she helped implement additional controls to ensure the safety of not only staff, but also their families. I began by asking Sam how that switch from policing into health and safety came about. So it was never an intentional move, should I say. I studied criminology at uni with a focus on sexual and domestic violence and had every intention to join the police, even to the point where I went through a police and qualification. I applied for the police force in Derbyshire and I was successful with that. But unfortunately, it was an 18 month wait until my start date. So I kind of had a bit of a limbo around where I go next and what I do. Did a few admin jobs, worked briefly in recruitment for a few weeks, wasn't really for me, and then started at Marks and Spencers in the health and safety department as the administrator. Quite quickly, I kind of thought, I'm quite into this. A lot of similarities to my degree around chronology and investigations and continued with it that way. Um, got to the point a few months later or so where the police said, right, I'm ready for you to join. And I turned that down and stayed for Marks and Spencer. There's a lot of similarities and a lot of people tend to go into health and safety as a, as a secondary career from things like police and military so there is a lot of lot of crossover there but obviously you've done it a slightly different way around which is which is quite interesting but certainly that type of mindset and that type of person kind of lends itself really well to to health and safety so you're at PepsiCo now so what's your role at PepsiCo and what does that involve? Yeah, so my health and safety specialist at PepsiCo, it was a big change to MS. Obviously, MS was an automated distribution centre, and here it is manufacturing. So it was a real sidestep and quite an intentional sidestep to learn something completely new. I work at Walker's Chris Manufacturing. My role involves advising on all safety matters, which is quite vast considering the facility here. So we manufacture the crisps uh, mostly. So it ranges from training and coaching managers on how to conduct investigations, completing ergonomic assessments, advising on exposure limits, machine safety. And we're also ever growing here. Um, we've got a lot of ongoing investment going on. So a lot of focus at the moment is around advising on all safety matters for projects. So design and install. And of course, at the moment, lots of COVID, unfortunately. We'll come on to COVID shortly, but uh, let's just think back a little bit to kind of November, December time last year when when uh, when it was kind of you found out that you were nominated for the award and then subsequently that you won uh, SHP Rising Star in, in construction for 2020. How did that feel when you when you found out that you were shortlisted and that you'd uh, that you'd won the award? I was very surprised. Um, obviously, I got the honour to look at everyone else's lineup as well and see what everyone else was nominated for. So very surprised to be nominated but also very surprised to win it and um, very thankful um, but especially because I'm quite new in manufacturing and um, it was quite unexpected. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned training there you've done a lot of work with with interactive training sessions and looking at kind of the moral reasons for investigations and their role in preventing accidents and I guess that's sort of stems back to your criminology background. Uh, what can you tell us about some of the work that you've, that you've been doing there? Yeah so I'm a strong believer in the importance of bringing people along on the journey with you and um, so this quite 
quite often aids of delivery. So if you're trying to get people on board, if you achieve that, people are more than happy to kind of go along with you. So very quickly after I joined Pepsi, I identified room for improvement in the way we investigate incidents on site. So we had a digital platform that we weren't utilising. So I saw moving digital as an opportunity to develop and deliver training to managers on site around the new procedures I was putting in place, the digital system, but also more importantly, why we investigate, including the moral reasons. So Zoom, as we know, has been great in terms of keeping people connected, but I felt it limited engagement quite a lot. So when you're talking around discussions on why we investigate and the moral reasons, I wanted to get people in the room. So it took a bit of time to kind of align that and make sure we could do it in a COVID safe way. Um, but this was so important as it really led to some open discussions around the manager's role in investigations, but also the impact it has if things don't go well, if somebody gets hurt, how that feels. Um, and it really opened up some really honest conversations and hard hitting personal experiences that I think really helped get the message across to everyone attending. I think that's part of the uh, sometimes a challenge with, with health and safety is that particularly when you're talking to kind of board members and, and senior leaders and, and actually trying to get buy-in for initiatives there's actually a lot of the conversation is about trying to put plans in place to stop something from happening and actually to actually to reverse that mindset and go well this is what will happen if something does happen and get them thinking that way around is quite a challenge so it's, it's, I think it's quite impressive that you've managed to to kind of do that. Just talking about COVID a little bit, is that partly why the the training went interactive and, and that kind of how has that uh, COVID affected the training sessions, obviously, with social distancing in place? Yeah, so we're very fortunate we had a very large meeting room. So we were able to um, limit the amount of people. So it meant you know, a lot more sessions. Um, normally, I'd like to get people up, move around, look at a board, write things on the post-it note and kind of huddle around different areas and to have that discussion. We weren't able to do that, um, but we were able to be in the same room, thankfully, but with two metre plus distancing between everybody, cleaning down the tables, etc. beforehand and, and frequent breaks. Um, we were fortunate. If we didn't have the space, we wouldn't have been able to do that. And I guess as a food manufacturer, you've remained pretty much fully operational throughout all the kind of various lockdowns. And that was, I think, some of your responses to COVID was one of the reasons that kind of you stood out to the judges. So can you talk us to, through, uh, aside from the training, what else you've kind of implemented within the business and, and what changes um, the pandemic has brought to PepsiCo as a business? Yeah, so I joined Pepsi in April. So I was kind of the first month into lockdown so I'd already implemented controls at Marks and Spencer so I was quite fortunate that I can bring a lot of that experience along with me. Um, our COVID controls have been constantly reviewed here so as we know the government guidelines changes you know introduction of masks for example we're always having to keep up around what the advice is and what the new science is saying. So since I've joined I've been a big part of implementing additional welfare facilities so as we said we have carried on operating and we haven't managed to use our canteen as we normally would so that means closing down meter room space, implementing further the season arrangements there, water cabins to have additional changing facilities, all of that to help maintain social distancing. I've also continually updated the business controls for the UK, not just Leicester site, notably around travel restrictions. The recent surge testing has been a bit of a change for us to try and encourage people to get their tests in the local area and not allow them onto site unless they have been to that testing facilities. And we've also introduced the uh, introduction of face coverings very recently when you're moving away from your work area. So all of which is there's been a challenge to get the workforce on board, especially as frequently changed. But actually, the guys here have been great and everyone's took it in their stride and, and welcome the extra changes that have come in. And have you seen either an increase or a decrease because of social distancing in certain procedures inside the inside the manufacturing process and has that brought about any challenges? 
Yeah, so we had a real challenge at the start around a complete ban for non-essential visitors. So engineering works were kind of put on hold and that's okay to manage the first few weeks. And we've had to obviously introduce some of that back in again and really look at how we do it safely. So social distancing absolutely is the main the main control we must aim towards. It's not always possible for engineering tasks. So then we start to look at keeping people in bubbles, doing testing beforehand to make sure they're COVID negative and then implementation of face coverings and visors as well those tasks so we've had to really think around what is essential what isn't essential and if we must do it what is the safest way to do it and a lot of that is based on contractors our employees have been great we've we've changed the roles we've closed down stations so they are more distanced and it is just more the contractors it's been a harder challenge to get around and i think on a, on a similar line some of the things that we heard during particularly the first lockdown was around um kind of machine inspections and with inspectors not being able to come on on site even machines were coming up to the uh, their inspection day and was that a challenge at all and how did you kind of come across that to enable to carry on using machinery that might need to be inspected Absolutely. So we initially obviously tried to delay things if we could. So, you know, initially when we first went into lockdown, we all thought it would be a few weeks, a few months at most. Once it was clear it wasn't, we just had to find the ways around it. And like I said, with the testing, we've got a lot of work going on at the moment with new installs going on. So we're making sure all our contracts are tested before they come into site. Um, and that's really helped with the government initiative to get workplaces to do that as well. And I believe you've put in a bit of work around supporting families of workers and, and, and able to keep them safe. Obviously, there must be some sort of worried families out there with, with workers going into, into manufacturing plants and, and mingling with other colleagues. And uh, what kind of work have you done around that to keep them reassured? Absolutely. So our teams here are key workers. So we have been throughout it. It hasn't stopped. Obviously, and office workers have been able to work from home if they can. Um, but the guys that are working in the factory have been here. Now, being in Leicester as well, as you're probably aware from the news, we've kind of been in a lockdown pretty much since July time. Um, so we've had a lot of very worried families. The, the rate's been quite high in the local area. We're very fortunate at site that we haven't seen any of the outbreaks in our facility at all. It's all been isolated cases. So the way we've tried to reassure families is, is sending comms out, not just on the screens here and, and advising people what to do, but also sending letters home. So we, we kind of took it as our duty to make sure that our workforce were aware, not just what our controls are, but what the controls are in the local community as well because that is changing and not everybody watches the news or is fully aware of that so we've really tried to keep them safe in terms of this is what we used to do on site equally at home this is what you must do and here's what you can do to keep yourself safe so here's hand sanitizer and here's how we use it here's how you wear face coverings to try and educate the wider population as well and do the majority of your workforce kind of drive to work or, or do they have to get public transport because I think some of the challenges around returning to work in London there's a lot of fear about how people are going to get into London and there's a lot of travelling on public transport which is making people anxious. Was that uh, ever been a challenge or did the majority of your workforce not kind of use public transport? It's a real mix. Some use public transport, there's a lot of car sharing reliability. And quite often we've given advice around, actually, please don't car share unless you really have to. If you do, wear a face covering, open the window, get the ventilation in the car and try and separate where you sit. And again, the same for taxis as well. So we've kind of pushed guidance on that. Some people have been public transport. Some people have been able to find arrangements to get around that now as well. But there has been that nervousness, yeah. Another thing that uh, the judges were impressed were with was kind of, um, we touched on earlier, is the impact that you've had in, in such a short space of time in the role, such a well-established company. Can you talk a little bit about how you've, how you've achieved those changes and, and what is the culture within the business that's helped you do that? 
Yeah, so first of all, I was really nervous around stepping away from MS. You know, I was there for five years. I knew it really well. I knew my role, I knew the people, but I do like a challenge. Thankfully, PepsiCo have really welcomed change and improvements. So I was fortunate that coming with new ideas and perspective was kind of welcomed with open arms. You know, there was no walls that went up. Everyone really wanted to hear my thoughts on things. I think that's really helped. The culture is very much one that to act as owner and get things done. You know, you're not really gone against if you get things wrong that's okay you know if you get things wrong you learn for it that is welcomed so the culture of that has really helped to deliver train changes because any suggestions I have the team's been more than welcome for them. The people on the shop floor have been receptive to those changes and, and really got on board with, with what you've implemented? Absolutely you know you, you have some that are very much I've been here 20-30 years you know we've got a really long service um, at our facility here but as soon as you talk through the why to people and get to know them a little bit and build that relationship up they're more than happy to jump on board. So I think a huge part of, of health and safety in particular is, is about communication and, and not just kind of coming up with the initiatives but actually how you get those ideas across and actually engage people and get them to buy into what you're thinking what do you think the future looks like for health and safety do you think it's it's kind of reshaped uh, the landscape at all for health and safety does the outlook for health and safety look different to when you came into it five six years ago yeah so I do believe that the future of health and safety is much more behavioral safety focused so I think it's gone other days of here's the safety textbook follow the rules because I said so I think we're much more focused on getting people on board um, like I said before that's how I like to work you know I, I'm quite clued up on some areas of legislation but I've always got room for improvement but much more important is how you engage with people you know I can go and look up a textbook afterwards and go seek some guidance around some legislation the important bit is how I engage um, in terms of the pandemic I I think it's really changed around the focus on health we've all gone through this together it's been very different and we've all had our own challenges around how we're going to cope with you know isolations and staying at home and not be able to go to the office and I think safe is really focused again on that mental well-being mental health first aiders how we talk to our workforce we've done a lot on site in terms of exercising get outside you know blank out time in your diary that well-being side of things I think that will continue and really focus the health part of safety. That's it. I think uh, a lot of our kind of daily lifestyles completely changed now. And, uh, I don't, you know, it's very unlikely to go back to kind of exactly how it was. And it's about how people kind of implement those changes and kind of run with it moving forward. And just finally, kind of what's next for you, assuming that we get back to some sort of normalisation over the next X, however many months, what, what kind of um, are you looking to do over the next year or so? And, you know, what, what implementation and ideas have you got over the next few months? So I'm absolutely itching to go see the other sites. So we have other sites across the UK. Um, a lot of my peers I talk to, you know, daily, weekly, getting ideas from everyone else. I want to go and meet them. I want to go see what challenges they're facing. I've just become the lead of walking, working surfaces. So slip, ships and falls for the UK. Um, so looking to get to know the other sites and see what I can do to make a difference with that one and move forward with the agenda. It was quite interesting to see how Sam has used her criminology qualifications and combined it with technology to implement some really good initiatives. It really shows the importance of showcasing individuals like Sam and the others features on this episode and trying to tap into some of their ideas in your own business. Finally, it's the turn of BAM Construction Training Managing Director Matthew Durant, who was named as SHP's Rising Star in Construction. Matthew started BAM Construction Training in 2013 with the intention to make engaging and interactive courses which put learners first. His dedication to partnering with other construction companies to provide young people with work and educational opportunities within the industry was noted by the judges, who said that he had a clear emphasis on trying to help the wider industry. 
I started off by asking Matthew about his apprenticeship and how he started his own business. I did fine in my GCSEs, got to the A-levels and I did horrendously. So I kind of left school without any real idea of what I was going to do, where I was going to go. I think it was my mum that found some sort of apprenticeship training type thing of getting people into work and helping with CV writing. And that would have been in 2010, 2011. And I was the top of the class. And that's really not saying a lot. But when an opportunity came up for an apprenticeship, they put me forward for it. And they said, there's an apprenticeship at a plant centre. And I thought, oh, garden centre, that'd be nice. I'll go and turn up. I can picture myself there. And I got there. It was plant and machinery. So it was a construction training centre. Grains, diggers, all sorts of people like that. Just a big driving school. So that was my apprenticeship, if you like. And, and over the two years, I made friends with the salesman and the trainer. And in 2013, we decided to start our own business. And that's um, where BAM came from. There was a B and an A and an M. And AM was me. So that's sort of how we got into doing what we do. Fast forward a couple of years, it's just me left now. So it should be M construction training, but there's um, too much paperwork involved. Tell me a little bit about the firm and what it is you do. And, and uh, obviously, you're, I was going to say your role within it, but you're the only person there at the moment. So, uh, so kind of what what um, you know what does the company do? We provide qualifications to the construction industry. I would say a large part of the work is sort of, um, to put it simply, driving licenses for the construction machines i mean if you've not thought about it you probably wouldn't know but anyone that's operating an excavator or a crane or something like that needs to have a driving license to do that so the large part of our work is making sure that the guys are trained correctly so that they can pass their test and just basically going to sites and making sure that they're still competent they know what to be pressing and how to operate it in a safe manner so there's a lot of new starters you know getting the laborers up or upskilling them to an operating stage but we go right from you know the basic level one labourer type things right the way up to sort of level six, seven senior management in terms of training. My role is just managing director, really. So we've got a team of guys and girls in the office that sort of facilitate that. And then we've got a bank of instructors across the UK that go and actually have the money boots experience to teach people the great way of doing it. And it's your work over the last 12 months or so that, that saw you nominated and subsequently win SHP's Rising Star and Construction Award for 2020. How did it feel when you found out that you were shortlisted and, and then when you were told that you'd won the award? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just fantastic to be recognised. I mean, let alone winning it. You know, you, you sort of get your head down and just keep working away. And then it's nice to sort of be, even be nominated. So to be shortlisted for it was an honour in itself. And then to sort of win and cross all of the other strong candidates was, was an honour, really. One of the things that the judges just highlighted uh, was your passion and, and, and dedication for providing training for, for young people coming into construction. Also, some of the work that you do in, in local schools and colleges. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and, and why that's important to you? For my side of things, when I left school and I fell into construction, I kind of felt like this, this was the, you know, the, I pulled the short straw. No one in schools really encourages people to go into construction. It's usually pushing them towards a more academic route. So for me, it's just important to challenge that perspective, really. A lot of people in construction tend to earn more than people in offices, and they don't have a big student loan to go with it. So really, the reason I'd like to get involved in schools is to just provide them with a with an experience of what it's actually like and give them an opportunity to review a job in construction. It's not just being out, you know, up to your knees in mud and getting wet and cold in the winter. There's all sorts of roles within that. And I think it's just challenging perspectives is why I like doing that. I think that's one of the most interesting things about health and safety in general, but also applies to construction is and again it's getting that message across to, to younger people that actually it's not that kind of perception of construction and health safety that, that is often out there there's actually a whole scope of, of different 
jobs and, and options within those sectors. And I, I sort of tailoring it back to, to health and safety is quite an interesting analogy that somebody told me fairly recently was um, was actually that you you might be you want to be a musician or you might want to be a chef, but you you can't cook or you can't play music. That doesn't mean you can't go into a career in those sectors. Uh, you mm. know, career in health and safety and the same in construction. You know, it might be that there's other options there that you can go and explore outside and still be involved in that sector without necessarily doing the sort of skilled role that you, that you wanted to do initially. Yeah, my practical skills are non-existent. I try and go out sometimes and help out and they just tell me to, you know, do you want to go back in the office? So, you know, there's a place for me and, you know, I've made it work. So it doesn't necessarily matter what your skills are. Some companies are employing drone technicians to do surveying and stuff like that. I mean, that couldn't be any more opposite of, you know, your stereotype of a construction worker than you could ever make up. So. There's plenty of opportunities out there, and, and that's why going to schools and you know doing these open days and bringing people down to the centre is just a really good way of getting them to experience it, really. And how receptive are they to that when you when you kind of show them that what's available and you know what kind of questions do you get asked and, and what kind of interest do you have from them? I mean, obviously, we haven't had anyone down since the, the pandemic, so it's been difficult to get people down. Um, most schools are terrified at the idea of letting their kids loose near large plant machinery. So it's actually quite difficult to get them down. We've had a couple of groups of, of kids come down. We had one from a sort of pupil referral unit in Slough, and these kids were sort of forced onto a basic construction course because the teachers had deemed them not really capable of doing much else. So they pushed onto this course and they didn't really want to be doing construction. So we got them down and, um, you know, they sort of joked around and said, oh, you know, well, let's have a go on the crane. They said, well, that's why you're here. And they thought, what? And they all started, they acted really nicely. They behaved themselves. It, I think it was just the fact that they were so shocked that someone had a bit of confidence in them to do something, mm. you know. So it was nice to get them down and say, look, you might be doing basic construction now, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be doing basic construction forever. You could be going into this role or, or that. And they're really appreciative of it, really. And what kind of training is it, is it you do? Is it primarily classroom based or obviously pre-pandemic or is it um, is it online virtual training? I mean, virtual training is really difficult to do with people in the construction sector. I mean, I think the only industry with less uh, technology is the hunting and fishing industry. So right at the bottom of it. So online training can work for sort of your higher level management supervision type roles. But majority of people in construction at a labourer or skilled operative level are terrible with computers and i'm sure they won't mind me saying that so we don't do a great deal of online training there is some elements that are theoretical based you know they need to be able to point out some of the underpinning safety issues of working around machinery and things like that uh, verbally but most of the work is practical they're practical people they want to be getting their hands dirty and and stuck in and, and actually it's so much easier to teach someone when they are there face to face in that scenario than it is to give them just a textbook example. So I would say probably 30% of the work is, is classroom based and the majority of it's outside and we need large practical areas to demonstrate. So, you know, in terms of social distancing, this we've got a 90 by 90 metre area to do digging, so plenty of space. I was going to say, how, how has the pandemic affected the business then? Because I guess a lot of construction sites have, have kind of remained open throughout, certainly the second lockdown. How have you been affected by, by the pandemic and, and what's going on? Yeah, I think everyone was in the same position the first lockdown it was completely unprecedented nobody knew what to expect so the sort of the knee-jerk reaction was everybody stopped doing everything so in the first lockdown sort of april time we we stopped you know everything was um quiet everyone was furloughed nothing was going on and after a few weeks you know we were getting people phoning up saying our guys cannot get onto site without the training and so we've sort of had a case for 
safety critical trading, which is urgent for our clients. And so we started to do bit by bit, you know, with the odd one to one type scenario with all the measures in place. And then really we we realized we can meet the guidelines. We are essential for these people to continue working. And so from that point onwards, we, we were up and running. And from June, it's, it went crazy. You know, it's really busy. I think some people are put off by the subsequent lockdowns, the one in November um, and the one at the start of January. You know, it puts off private individuals wanting to spend, you know, money and, and better themselves. So it does have an effect. But we've been established a long time now. We can sort of ride the storm a bit. And you've got to be flexible. There's a lot of businesses in worse positions than ours. So we, we kind of count our blessings, really, that we're in the sector we're in. There's a similar sort of issue with with actually machinery and machinery inspections and things during the first lockdown as well, where actually this machine needed an inspection at this point. There's no inspectors coming out to inspect the machine and therefore the machinery couldn't remain operational. And I guess it's the same with with drivers. You need to have qualified drivers fully up to date on their qualifications in order to be able to operate. And and I think that's why it's it's quite interesting from a health and safety perspective in, in how the pandemic has actually sort of almost heightened the role of the health and safety manager because actually you need to almost run everything by the health and safety manager at the moment. And, and if the health and safety manager hasn't said the site is safe to operate or the business is safe to operate, the business can't operate. And therefore, you know, businesses like yourself, training businesses and health and safety manager are absolutely critical at the moment in, in order to keep business open and, and functional. Absolutely. You know, people are getting dedicated roles as a, as a COVID marshaler and things like this on site. Their sole job is to go around and make sure that people are distancing and are wearing their masks. So if anything, as you say, the health and safety side of things, and it only ever will get more stringent. You can't just suddenly decide, actually, we don't need health and safety. Mm. Yeah. It's just never going to happen. So from our perspective, it's key to make sure that the guys keeping their tickets in date, you know, and so that they can be working. And am I right in thinking that the, the Rising Star Award wasn't your only uh, success last year? You won a couple of awards as well, did you? Yeah, I mean, last year we won uh, a Customer Service Excellence Award. We won um, Best Construction Provider in the Southeast. Um, I won a Construction Role Model Award. So, yeah, it all sort of seems to come to a head at the same time, really. But um, I've got to say, your, your trophy is the nicest one. <laughs> yeah it's nice to be working i mean the business has been this will be our eighth year now so i've had t- over 10 years in the industry so it's just nice to, to have a little bit of recognition from a selfish perspective really for the work we do and what do you think that recognition does for you as a business uh, you know do you think that's going to help bring in extra clients and, and make your sort of people more aware of you i think that's what it is it, to me the important thing is just raising awareness that there are places out there that want the best view i mean we actively push people away from doing some courses because you've got to think at the end of the day they're doing this to get a job so if doing this qualification is going to you're going to struggle to find work at the end of it we're not going to push you to do that so to raise awareness that there is somebody out there that will take the time to talk to you to understand your background and find out what you want to do and why um yeah hopefully the, the awards will bring more recognition of the fact that that's the work that we do and, and encourage more people to take the plunge and, and have a change in their career and you mentioned uh, the primary sort of training you do is, is face-to-face, but you do do a little bit of virtual. What do you think the future of health and safety training looks like? And has the pandemic affected that at all? Have you put any plans in place to kind of mitigate against any future lockdowns or anything like that? And, and what do you think the future looks like for training? The training industry as a whole, I think, is going to revolve around a blend of face-to-face and virtual training. A lot of industries are doing only virtual training. And I think for anyone that's got 
experience using computers and technology, virtual training is, is going to be the only way forward. I mean, there's less running costs, there's more flexibility. You could book with a provider in Scotland, it doesn't matter where you're based. So I think there are real merits to doing virtual training. But for our side of things, there is only so much you can get across through a screen. You know, construction is in your face. And unless you can see the white of their eyes and know that they understand it, it's really difficult to, to, to prove that they understand the, you know, the issues and get their confidence across. Are there elements of um, sort of technology and, and particularly I'm thinking around sort of uh, virtual reality type training that's useful in construction? I've, I've been kind of exposed to a little bit of virtual reality, particularly sort of working at height and, and um, working underground type training where it's kind of good to, to put somebody in that scenario before they you send them up a massive ladder and then realise they're scared of heights. Do you do any of that work and, and, and how useful is that kind of tra- technology? You know, prior to the pandemic, we were always exposed and, and trying out the latest gadgets. I mean, there are examples of cherry pickers, as you say, you know, they've got a model, a rig type thing and you put the headset on and you can understand what it's like to operate it and um, uh, things like that. There is another one of, you know, working there. I mean, I had the headset on and I put my hand through this saw blade and my fingers were chopped off. So it was um, really interesting. But another one for our industry is really good is the simulators. So you kind of get a screen or maybe two or three screens, a couple of joysticks there, and you can just show that you're operating the machine and it's it's interacting in front of you. There are definitely merits to doing that. I mean, it, as you say, it gives people an awareness of what's going on before they commit to going somewhere or spending a great deal of money. The issue for software like that and the hardware for it is the cost. I mean, a simulator for an excavator costs the same amount as buying an excavator. So from my side of things and my business perspective, I'm better off having an excavator that I can actually do training with than this gimmick that can I can do perhaps one or two days with. So if we had thousands of pounds of profit and we needed to lose some of it, I would probably invest in a simulator. Not quite there yet. So it's on the horizon. We always keep an eye out for it. And when the price does come down, it's more affordable. I think you'll see it more often. But at the moment, it's kind of a novelty and the price just doesn't outweigh the benefits of getting it. That's really interesting. Just finally, assuming that you know we get back to some sort of normal before long, uh, what are your plans for yourself and the business uh, for 2021 and beyond? The immediate plans really are reinvestment. We've had some support from the councils uh, and the furlough scheme and stuff like that, and it's really important for us to make sure that that's going back in to the sites that we've got in the form of you know concreted walkways so that we can ensure people are outside and distancing. It's about upgrading the fleet of machinery so that they've got the best quality machines to do the training with. You know, we've put heating and lighting and, you know, ventilation in all of the inside cabins, um, faster internet. So for us, the important thing at the moment is just reinvesting back in the centre. We've had a long period of time at home away from it. So I want to do whatever we can to make sure that it's safe to go back and, you know, and people want to be at their training centre. So that's the next sort of plan over the year is consolidate what we've got, reinvest in the different training centres, make sure that they're top notch. I liked how Matthew was so focused on challenging the perception of a career in construction and highlighting that to encourage young people into the sector. SHP Awards judges said he was playing an important role in trying to encourage young people into health and safety in construction, educating them on what life is like in the industry. Whilst virtual training has been critical for many businesses throughout the last year, Matthew also touched upon how important it is that we successfully negotiate ourselves out of the pandemic and get back to -to face-to-face training as soon as we can. It's always a huge pleasure to talk to all of our award winners, but particularly those in the Rising Star category, who are all new to the profession and making a large and rapid impact. 
Sometimes we need those new and fresh ideas to help us challenge ourselves, and I think these interviews have really highlighted that. As with the in previous years, SHP will continue to highlight and promote the careers of all our winners, and I will always watch with a keen eye to see how they are progressing. Congratulations to all of them once again. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Thomas Dunning, Lucilla Cummings, Samantha Watts and Matthew Durant for their time in speaking to me for this episode. Thank you to you as well for tuning in and listening. If you've not listened to the previous 10 episodes of the Safety and Health podcast, please go back and check them out. Last time we focused on the latest health and safety legislation updates, particularly around returning to work and the coronavirus vaccination programme. We also heard from SHP's most influential person in health and safety, Hilda Palmer. If you like what you hear, you can go and follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And we're also available on Amazon Alexa. Simply ask to play the Safety and Health podcast. We'd be really grateful if you could rate or comment on your chosen platform, as that will help us get the shows out to a wider audience. Please do tune to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news, where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening, and see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.